Welcome to Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives Podcast. In Season 1, we learned about entrepreneurs and others around the world who were creating jobs and opportunities through esports. The one common theme throughout the season was that it takes money to create jobs and change lives. But let's face it, money can be hard to find, especially in some parts of the world, maybe in your part of the world. But this season, we are going to share stories from esports entrepreneurs in emerging markets and showcase how they found funding they need to be successful. We're also going to talk to investors in Africa, Asia, India, who have invested in esports and highlight the challenges that those markets face. In addition, we're going to talk about sponsors who provide funding to teams, tournament organizers, and streamers. Join us on this journey for Season 2 of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, aptly titled, Follow the Money. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast. When it comes to esports, I'm definitely not the expert. I'm more of the explorer. The goal behind the podcast is to talk to esports entrepreneurs and others around the world to learn how esports can create jobs, maybe to inspire others to do just that. Our tagline is play games, create jobs, change lives. In season two, we're talking with experts in sponsorship, investment, and other ways to raise money for an esports business because it takes money to create those jobs. We call the season Follow the Money. Today, really happy to have Rebecca Longua, who is an esports brand builder and strategist, and she has so much experience. I could spend like the whole introduction just going through everything that she has done because to me, it's really impressive. So we'll be, uh, we'll be talking to her about all kinds of things that she's been up to. So welcome, Rebecca. Hi, thank you for having me on, Tom. So, so where are you speaking to us from today? Um, I am right outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Great, great. And for people around the world, that's kind of the north central part of the, of the country. So what, what's the esports world like in, um, in Minnesota? We've got a pretty vibrant esports scene here. Um, we call this region the Twin Cities because of Minneapolis and St. Paul are kind of sister cities. Um, and within the Twin Cities area, um, we have um, Version 1 and Minnesota Rocker Pro Esports Organization. They've got their in Valorant, Call of Duty, and Rocket League. Um, they've got a handful of creators. We also have Wisdom Gaming, which is located here. That um, is a broadcast studio and content house. They're located in the Mall of America, which is you know the largest uh, mall in the United States. Um, we've got T Wolves Gaming as a as a pro NBA team owned by the Minnesota Timberwolves property. Um, all of that is here. There's a uh, Belong Gaming has offices here in the Twin Cities as well. Um, and there's there's a few content houses and uh, game publishers that are located in in Minnesota as well. So it's pretty vibrant. Our collegiate scene is robust. We have the largest Rocket League um, scene in the in the country on the collegiate side. Mankato State University being one of the largest. Um, University of Minnesota has a pretty robust esports. Um, league as well. And we also have a very structured high school league in Minnesota, the Minnesota High, high School Varsity League, um, which is a pretty robust esports um, property that is also based here. So uh, esports is booming in, in That's Minnesota. That's good to hear sure. because so many times, so much of the time we always think, well, everything happens in California if it's esports. And it's like, right. no. Yeah. Or Yeah. And or it's like, Dallas. no, there's a whole, whole, whole other part of the country. And you know, for a lot of people in our audience, they're not quite as familiar with with, um, with how the U.S. is broken up. There, so that's good to hear. So I wanted to talk first about monetization, because that's a theme of, of season two. And in particular, 
when you're talking, uh, when you created um, the Happy Warrior, which I think that is a great name, your consultant. It's like one of the things that I always figure out early on is, is, is this a smart marketer? And it's like anyone that comes up with really clever names, I think uh, I, I'm always impressed by that because the, those things do not happen by accident. You didn't just, it's, there, there was purpose behind it. So could you describe a little bit what Happy, Happy yeah. Warrior does? And, and maybe a little bit also on how it started. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Happy Warrior is actually named after um, a poem that was um, written uh, after the Napoleonic War called The Characteristics of a Happy Warrior. And that poem is about going to war and going to battle, but not losing your morality and your values. So um, it talks about the different characteristics of being a, a, a happy warrior and if anybody wants to, you know, Google that, so it's a really great, um, it's a really great uh, piece of of art. And my dad was a soldier growing up, and that was in his office, and um, had highlighted different characteristics and different values that are within that poem. And it really stuck with me. And it, when I worked in traditional sports, I came from the NBA. When I worked in traditional sports, that poem really started to come to life with me for me through watching a lot of traditional athletes um, really lose their character and lose themselves. Um, and ultimately the ones that I would watch over the years that were kind of um, going down some dark paths in regards to their moral lives um, really uh, had a hard time transitioning out of traditional sports. So when, um, when I created Happy Warrior as a consulting firm, it was really with those traditional athletes in mind. Um, but I think the values of what it stands for has, has really rung true in, in esports as well. So it's just the, it's just the ethos of how I want to do business. Um, at the end of the day, it's all about um, doing what is good and what is right. Um, and not just doing things for, for fame or for glory. So um, I was, I was working in uh, traditional sports, working with the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Lynx. Um, I was married at the time and just started, um, the, the digital revolution was really happening, uh, throughout my entire career. I was part of web one. Um, and when I created happy warrior, it was right around the time when people were starting to monetize social media. And what I saw was an opportunity to help athletes that I was working with, um, day in and day out, um, in my, in my business life. Um, they were asking me a lot of advice on how they could, you know, really start creating personal brands themselves and monetize their, their, um, their social media. They didn't really know how to navigate that. And, um, I, uh, left working with the Timberwolves and, um, just really started taking some risk. I was producing some photo shoots and film shoots underneath that, um, the happy warrior brand was working directly with some talent, some, um, athlete talent. And then I also took on a contract with our former governor and former pro wrestler, Jesse Ventura, through a property called Aura Television to do a web-based uh, TV show and podcast, where I was basically just a field producer here in the Twin Cities. This was the location that they shot at six months out of the year. They just made sure that everything was was uh, was running. Um, when I left traditional sports, um, a lot of my job when I worked at the Timberwolves was also helping some of the emerging technology come into the space. So 
going from paper tickets to to um, digital tickets is probably the easiest to explain for anybody to understand. Um, and so I started working uh, about five years ago as an advisor with an investment venture capitalist fund called Stadia Ventures on advising them on some of these sports tech companies. And I got exposed to esports through that. So there were some, you know, we have kind of like an open call twice a year for startups to to um, to apply. And we started seeing some esports companies come through. And I was like, this is kind of cool. This seems like the next thing. What can I do to learn about this? Um, and and I just kind of fell in love with the space and it got to fire my belly for it. Um, and yeah, when, when COVID struck, like so many other people, I, I knew I needed to evolve because uh, a lot of the events and traditional sports projects that I was working on kind of went away. So I just went feet first um, right into the esports space and uh, you know, started kind of rebranding myself even to being all about, about the Do industry. Do you think that there's a lot of overlap between traditional sports and, and esports? It sounds like you were working in one and then moved to the other. Could you, could you maybe describe the kinds of things that you see that are similar and the things that are different? Yeah, I would say from, you know, to be on topic for what, what, what your theme is in regards to um, monetization is there's two ways to monetize and they're tied closely together, right? It's um, the sponsorship media, um, but that is talking to fans. So where things are similar is the same sorts of endemic and non-endemic dial partners. Um, You're talking to the same people from a sponsorship side, right? So the same contact that is working with um, an NBA and an NFL team is more than likely the same contact that is vetting out these esports opportunities for their brands and their orgs. The differentiation is the marketing strategy and tactics that you would use to reach the esports fan versus a traditional fan. The way that the fans engage with brands through that property is is very different. Um the demographic is is a lot different as well. In esports, you're going to get a much younger demographic, but you're also getting a demographic that was born digital and does not like to be marketed to. They want to build relationship with. Whereas a traditional sports fan, they're they're okay being marketed to. They, that's not really a big turnoff for them. That's it's kind of how it's always been. You know, we go back to like the endorsement, the product endorser, where you'd have like a football player on a TV screen doing a 30 minute commercial. Um, That's still quite prevalent in traditional sports. Take a look at somebody like Shaq and look at all of the different things he's involved in from, you know, general insurance to icy hot in, in esports. the cadence is a lot more about um, talking to your fans in real time, maybe through a stream and, um, not necessarily saying, try this product, this product's great, but um, having a little bit a little bit more s- stealth around it um, and and also having a real relationship with the product. A lot of times you see in the eSports ecosystem some 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 a lot more real 
the word authentic is very overused, but you know, more of an authentic relationship between the talent and the product or the service. Um, and then that comes through a little bit more organically and creates better buy-in from the end um, consumer. I think that's a great dis- distinction there that you're making between the, the relationship between the, the brands and the traditional sports fan and the brands and the esports sports fan that, that are different and you have to approach them differently. We were talking to Christian Bishop a while back from Twitch, uh, and he was a big proponent of um, brand, of uh, esports organizations, of teams, of tournaments, to mm-hmm. move beyond sponsorship to try to monetize the relationship with the with the with the, with their fans directly. Do you see that happening more? Yeah, I think you know, with with LAN coming back, with live events coming back. You do have the opportunity to create more of a of a true relationship and a, a deeper fandom um, with your organization and with your property. Um, those can be a little cost prohibitive to those that are new to market to those those younger organizations. Uh, so, so it's it in theory it, it sounds like yeah that makes perfect sense and that's great. It's not necessarily the the easiest to pull off, um, and there's quite you know, there's quite an education gap um, when it comes to some of the non-endemic properties to really get them to even understand what gaming and esports means for them. Um, one thing that always strikes me is how many um, large consumer product companies say they want to be relevant to Gen Z and they don't, you know, they are looking for advice on how do we reach Gen Z? How do, what do we need to build in order to reach Gen Z? Um, but 87% of them are playing video games. So you can reach them where they already are. And that, that's not just through esports. There's a, the, the ecosystem is quite robust. So it, it also can be through other pathways into, into gaming. Um, like we've seen with, with some of the, um, product integration directly in game in game skins um, that are that are being done. You know, even if you take a look at um, Bitmojis on Snapchat, you can pick out a Puma outfit or an Adidas outfit, and now you're starting to see that in in games like Fortnite. So what, um, what would you say the role of agencies are in connecting brands to esports teams? Is is that something that that um, if if you're if you're an esports team or a tournament organizer, should you be thinking about also talking to agencies as much as talking to brands directly? Yeah, I think agencies are pretty young in this space. Um, you know, agencies are trying to advise on things that many times they're not subject matter experts in. I think in order for agencies to win. They should bring in true esports subject matter experts to help advise them um, in lieu of trying to just do big media buys. Um, I think the agency approach has been um, a a lot of plug and play um, in spaces that they're comfortable in and they feel safe in, which is, you know, a lot of Twitch ad buys, um, which can be successful, but I don't know if it's necessarily going to bring that relationship like like you spoke to, um, which is probably where Christian Bishop is, who's a, who's a dear friend, and, and I love that guy, who's saying it needs to be a little bit deeper than that. It needs to be more about relationship building and and not just, you know, slapping logos on things. 
um, which we all kind of agree is, is not necessarily the big win, right? Um, I also think custom content is something where agencies can really evolve to helping curate um, really high-end custom custom content. I also think there's a big opportunity, and I know there's a, a lot of chatter around around starting to produce these, but the storytelling um, through a documentary style or even um, non-documentary style storytelling through uh, properties like Amazon and Netflix could be um, I- extremely, um, you know, uh, successful in, in, in getting more of a mainstream understanding of what, what do you think if, if someone's big enough, do you think that there are uh, the potential to sell media rights outside of, let's say the streaming, let's say to more to, um, to other, other platforms, other, um, other outlets out there. Is there, is there ever going to be a media rights um, market for esports content? It, it, it is going to take a bit, I think, to build towards that. Um, I think, I think doing, uh, if there was a big Netflix uh, show or something that really got people to understand, it's been dripped into certain things. Like I think Ballers had an episode that that was featuring a little bit, little taste. There's been little tastes th- of things here and there. There's been some documentaries on, I think uh, maybe there was one about uh, like a League of Legends tournament or something around Cloud9 at some point. I mean, there, there's been some test and measure there. Um, I think something, a, a big movement towards that for people to really understand the, um, the excitement and energy around this space will get it to be a little bit more mainstream and become more of a household understanding and a household name. And I think, you know, uh, there's still a lot of stereotypes that need to be broken about gaming in general. Um, I think we saw it in the, in the most recent Space Jam movie within the first 10 minutes. It was LeBron James telling his one kid to get off the video game while his other son was, you know, being the one who was practicing in the backyard on the basketball court. Um, and we kind of lose the understanding of the value of um, how integral um, gaming is to uh, creating really well-rounded young people and the, the ties to the creative mind and leadership and, and STEAM-based careers. Um, so I think there's a lot of cultural shift and change and awareness that needs to happen that will support it as well. And then all those others will start the 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 scalability that is um, really bringing those foundational types of things we're used to seeing in, in other areas um, to be successful. But, you know, the, the problem is if you try to push something like that too soon, it'll fail. Um, and then the ability to try again is pushed back, you know, another 10 the Two years. things that I, I like hearing you bring up there are, um, well, I, I like hearing th- this, this concept of dripping. It's like, you know, it's like that's, 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 that can make a bigger impact than people give a credit for if, if it's, if, if it's done uh, uh, to a certain scale. And I also like hearing you talk about storytelling because that's, esports is, is storytelling. I mean, it's like you, you don't yeah. go to any, uh, any, any event uh, and, and, and not, right. not appreciate I the mean, story what, side of it. If, if you consider what makes a streamer very successful, is their ability to entertain and tell stories while they're playing video games. They don't right? have to be a good so, player. No, no. In fact, some of the, some of the top, I mean, I mean, look at Ninja versus Booga and Fortnite. Like 
you know, Buga's the biggest, it was, you know, one, when that big championship was the, was the top competitor. Although there was just something about, you know, when you talk about mainstream and cultural significance, it was just like decided that, that, that Tyler Blevins was the guy that Ninja was the esports face. And it was just like, everybody was clamoring for him at one point. Um, I mean, he's still very relevant, but I mean, it was like, he was all of a sudden thrust everywhere on everything. It was like, uh, the, you know, Hannah Montana moment of, of cultural relevance for esports. you know? Now, now that, that, yeah, that's interesting to look back at the, um, so if you were talking to a team that was interested in monetizing, interested in talk, getting involved with brands, whether through an agency or on their own, what, what would you recommend them to do? How do they do, especially if they're on the smaller side, what should they be doing to, to make that connection work, to get it to set up? Well, the first thing is, you know, I mean, the first thing is like, what, what, what's your differentiator? What's your, what is your brand? Like, what are you as a brand? Um, I really like to um, talk to properties and even creators about creating uh, that, that brand identity, that brand story. And I don't mean a logo and color and typography. I mean, what is the lifeblood and what is their purpose? Um, what are their, what are their values? Um, what change are they trying to make either in the ecosystem or in the world? And then how can that live out? Um, through their organization that gives fans something to believe in. I mean, Simon Sinek, you know, says, you know, people will believe in what, you know, people who believe in you, like you have similar belief systems. I don't know exactly how he says it, right? Like people believe in what you believe in. The Simon Sinek, why? You have to kind of reverse engineer that. You can't just say, we're going to have a really competitive team in this vertical and now everybody should just care about us has to be deeper than that. Um, and I really like learning, taking some learnings from traditional sports, creating special moments, memorable moments, um, things for fans to really gravitate towards. Uh, one thing that Minnesota Rocker um, has done really well, which is a Call of Duty team here in Minnesota, is um, creating opportunities for their fans to connect together in real life. So they've hosted um, a, a Call of Duty launch weekend. They hosted a majors last year. They're building out some home series. They do a lot of watch parties. Um, they came out with their own microbrewery, Summer Shandy Beer, that was branded rocker. It was called Final Circle. It's, it's purple in color. And they have been doing um, watch parties at different bars that serve that beer. Um, and. And that has served very well for them because it gives their fans something not only to see on an end cap when they go into, you know, a, a liquor store, um, but also to come together and have something tangible, something physical. They also have emulated the school chant, which is what the Minnesota Vikings football team does. It's called the school chant. Um, and during um, Call of Duty Majors 2 last year when Minnesota hosted it, um, they had all the fans waiting before the doors opened and before they let, you know, as people were walking through or as they were opening the gates, they had somebody standing up, I think on a ladder, even leading the skull chant. So getting people to come together and create memorable, repeatable moments 
definitely makes them feel like they're a part of something, part of a culture, part of a, a family or a community. That's what fandom is all about. So um, as I've been talking to some other organizations and other teams about fandom, th- those are some really great examples that I like to share. Sounds like they have a really good marketing department there. They have a big marketing department there, and they've got a lot of former agency former agency people um, on staff and former you know sports talent on on staff as well. So that that helps. They also their head of content was a uh, a an extremely uh well known uh Call of Duty creator for Optic. Um so Ashley Midnight Glassel is a pretty household name in Call of Duty. So being able to tap into subject matter expertise on all three of those fronts with the top three people in that firm, one coming from the NFL events and partnerships, one coming from, um, you know, running marketing at an advertising agency and the other being a content creator, you know, they kind of figured out a, a nice little trifecta of expertise to come together and, and build an org around. So um, they definitely um, were strategic in, in how they were going to build uh, at, at the, at the inception of that organization. Um, I also think one of the, um, the best things that esports orgs can do is understand who their, who their, um, potential partners, um, are and how they think. And that's at a case to case basis. Um, it's not a one size fits all. Um, and that's where I've brought in, I think the most thought leadership within sponsorship is coming from an agency and, and working directly with brands, understanding um, what questions to ask a brand on what success is going to look like for them. And then really creating a strategy um, to meet their goals and objectives Um, in lieu of what kind of has happened in the past, which is, um, you know, organizations, esports organizations saying, here's the things we want to do. Here's the content we want to produce. Here are the assets we have to sell. We're going to put them in a package and we're just going to pitch it to all of these different people. Um, a brand isn't going to necessarily feel like that is for them, that it's special to them, that it's unique to them. So I like to, instead of doing that, I like to put on my, you know, my, my marketing hat, my, my, my brand hat of um, being a brand manager, a producer, a project manager, and looking at it as if I'm the agency for the client and I'm trying to create a campaign for them and um, come up with what, what um, really is going to, you know, where are they already finding success? Where are their key consumers? What does that look like? What campaigns are already successful? Um, and then say, okay, where within esports do we have something that's going to check these boxes? Um, if it's a family value type of a brand, like um, like we see with Bush's Baked Beans and Version One, you you know, as I was really learning a lot about Bush's Baked Beans, this is a two hundred plus year old family owned business that is very much about, about family and, um, and legacy. Um, 
who's trying to reach a new consumer set. So you can't just say, okay, well, let me tell you everything about this Call of Duty first person shooter game. That's not going to, that's not going to probably go over very well with Bush's baked beans, right? So immediately after hearing about where they're finding success and their values as a brand, the conversation naturally was around Rocket League. You know, whether you're three or 83, you can understand and follow that the ball has to go into the net and the cars are pushing the ball and it's bright and it's colorful. Sound on, sound off. You can understand what's going on. It's not super complicated. So, you know, it it, it transcends uh, cross generations. And then where a brand like Bush's Baked Beans um, can find large success in single transactions is selling to colleges and universities. So we built a program around the collegiate Rocket League scene and then doubled down on version one's Rocket League team, which is one of the top in the world, to do custom content as well. So cooking different things with with um, with beans and and Calm, who plays on their team, his dad is a chef. So doing a cooking with Calm series and creating all this really fun custom content coupled with reaching the collegiate demographic, which opens up relationships for Bush's team to start talking to these colleges. Now they've got a gateway into colleges. Now they can sell to the food service programs. So really thinking about it from a deeper layer and level of strategy of how is it going to anchor back? There's three things I think about. There's, there's authenticity, not to, which is not to, all about- Not to interrupt you here, but, but I yeah. hope people are taking notes. I mean, you're, you're, you're going through so many great ideas here. It's, I'm, just, I'm just nodding <laughs> my head. It's just like, because the kinds of things that you're saying are the exact same things that we keep hearing over and over. We heard them from Luca Tuconi at Red Bull in South Africa. It's like, don't come and tell me what you are. Come and tell us, come yeah. and tell me what you can do for me. Don't make me do yeah. the work. You do the work. And that's what I hear you I mean, saying. The first Sorry to meeting, interrupt. The f- no, and the first meeting should really be about discovering, uh, really learning about the brand, really doing a deep dive on that brand and what's successful, wh- where they find success and who they are and asking for materials and combing through those and doing your due diligence and your research. It's not just about, getting on a first call and going over your teams and how good they are and your demographics. Like that's, that, that's, that's, you know, that's maybe two, three, four meetings down the line. Um, but there's three things that I, that I think need to be balanced for success. One is like that storytelling and that's that word authenticity that we talk about. The other is credibility. I mean, a brand that wants to get into esports, especially a non-endemic brand who's coming in and your listeners aren't familiar with what endemic versus non-endemic. And endemic is a product that you need in order to to do the thing. So in esports, it's the it's the keyboard, it's the computer, it's the controller, um, it's the mouse, it's the chair. Those are endemic. The non-endemic are things that aren't aren't necessarily um, needed in order to to compete. It is the food. That you consume, it's the drink, it's vitamins, it's insurance, it's car dealerships, right? Those are non-endemic. They're not necessarily gaming, gaming-esque products, um, but they want they have a a, a a crossover in consumer base. They want to reach those consumers. Um, so credibility really is if you're a non-endemic brand, how do you get into something that really has nothing to do with your with your organization has nothing to do with your product other than the consumer. How do you get in without the consumer 
um, feeling like you don't belong there. And that's by going through a credible avenue. Credible avenue could be Twitch um, or another um, media type of a platform. It could be working with a team directly. It could be working with a community like um, community, um, the you know community with an X. Uh, yes. It could be working with the game hers or fem gaming. Um, it also could mean that you know you're working with a with a content creator, or a pro streamer, um, or an organization. So that gives you your credibility. But third, and this is so important on both sides. I think as a brand coming in, you really need to be clear about your monetization strategy. But as the person who's trying to do that deal, if you don't understand how you're going to help that partner monetize, then you're doing the entire industry a disservice. Because a lot of times with these non-endemic brands, we only have one shot to show them how esports is going to help them. And it's our job um, and, and anybody who has an agency background is going to understand this as well. It's our job to make your point of contact at that brand, the hero for their brand, for their company. I have, you're not I allowing, have said that. I have said that so many times. It's make the marketing manager the hero and your life will be so much easier. Yeah, exactly. Ex- explain things to them in a way, equip them with all of the data, all of the information, all of, all of the examples that they you know, you want to basically handhold them to the point where you're confident that they're going to be able to explain that to somebody who's never even heard of esports before, right? So, you know, it, it takes a little bit, slow down, be willing to, to come alongside your client, to really allow them to learn with you, um, to grow and, and over-deliver on um, the, the materials and the data that help them articulate that back. It's not enough for them just to be able to nod their head and understand it. They have to go explain it. And that's where a lot of people fall short. So if you're not able to help them determine and you're not building out your activations in a way that are going to anchor back for them to be able to make um, real KPIs, real money back for their organization, whether it's a long-term or or a short-term strategy, um, cause sometimes there's things that, you know, in the insurance world, a lot of these gamers aren't necessarily ready to go out and get insurance, but when they get their first car or they buy their first home, you really hope that state farm is on their mind. Right. Um, and, and state farms done a lot within the space. So, you know, some of it's a long-term strategy. Sometimes it's short-term, um, short-term strategies, but you want to make sure that you're building things with that monetization in mind for your client. And then you want to show them the data that they can show that whether it's immediate or down the road, that the needle's moving forward and that that action is happening. Um, When you're you're talking to to brands, when you're as an agency or or maybe working with, with different teams out there and you're talking to brands, have you noticed over time that the brands are getting that the person you're talking to on the other side is more likely a gamer than they were a few years ago? And if um, so, does that make a difference? Sometimes. I mean, I actually think it's it's not necessary. Sometimes you see with these companies, they're like, we're going to throw this to Johnny because Johnny plays video games or Johnny used to play video games. Johnny does not necessarily understand the, how to, how to know the strategies because he knows how to play a video game, right? Um, I would say most everybody plays video games at some point, right? Like, so it's, it's, 
you're hard pressed to find anybody on a brand side or an agency side that isn't familiar with video games anymore. I mean, especially when you consider mobile gaming, um, which is, it, it has more to do with understanding the, the culture of, of the, of gaming and, um, and that there's so many different layers or cohorts within, in the entire industry. So just because you're a gamer in one space doesn't mean you, you know, if you're a console gamer, it doesn't necessarily mean you understand even the culture at all uh, around PC gamers. And like my aunt Karen, you know, is 65 and she's a gamer because she probably spends eight hours a day on Bejeweled and is, is, you know, by in-game on her mobile phone, but she knows nothing about esports and she knows nothing about, she probably doesn't know what Twitch is, right? But she is still a gamer. Um, so I don't know if there's an advantage or a disadvantage to that. I think there could be arguments on either side. No, I it's think good to hear. what you see over time is um, individuals who are either choosing to be in charge of or put in charge of owning the gaming and esports activation vertical start really the ones who go to the events go to not only the the business side but also are going to the competitions um they start becoming subject matter experts themselves um and and we're we're starting to see that with some of the partners that that we're working with um at at version one and rocker for sure and and even you know some of the partners that we've had um at at the game hers um there's you know it, and and the ones who are doing really well are bringing outsiders in to advise them um whether they're for a short p- amount of time or for a long term strategy um that is where they're finding quick quicker success um trying to yeah, do it, it completely on your own is is quite difficult cuz cuz one of the things that i always i've always you know trying to sell someone an activation when we were working with disney over here it's like get the people there to go to a live event and to experience what it is. And if you if you can walk away from a really well done live event and not be excited for the for the industry for to, to get involved, it's like, well, then you're yeah, it's just not it's impossible to do. I want to move along here because because I I could keep talking and spend your whole day. But I wanted to talk about because you brought up gamers a yeah. couple of times. And we've talked to some people who um, in, in different parts of the world who are working with working with what they were calling build a pipeline of women in games to get people not not only to get women into gaming, but into the gaming industry, but to build a pipeline for them to get to the very top of the organization. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have some really great experience in working with with your um, women's car ball. Yes. It's like, that is another great name that, that you have there. It's like, that's just, okay, I know, I know what's going on here sort of thing. And also with gamers, could you talk a little bit about where you kind of see, because one of, one of the values I think of having you on the podcast here is that you have a, a longer range of, of, of experience than a lot of people that we talk to. And, and that's really interesting to see. Okay. So where are, where What's the, been the history of women in esports, not gaming, but in esports? And where do you think things are going? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it, there's a big cultural disadvantage for women in in competitive gaming. 
that is, I mean, we could spend an hour just trying to dissect that. I mean, I think there's a, there's, there hasn't been enough actual funded paid research to get to the core, but as a girl growing up as a gamer, you know, there's, I think there's a, there's quite a few things that have evolved over the years that, um, that kind of play in together. Number one, um, it culturally, especially in the United States, um, there is a perception by parents that, you know, the video game systems are for, are for the boys. Um, I, I've, I've heard many people say, we really would like my daughter to do the gaming, but I don't want her to play the games my son's playing, even if the son is younger, right? Um, there's this uh, mis- misconception about protecting our daughters and keeping them virtuous and not letting them, you know, be in the violent, violent games, quote unquote, right? Um, so that's one thing. Also, um, there's, there's no question about the toxicity within um the culture of gaming so even if there's girls who are interested in gaming and and competing they are often sexually harassed lobby kicked out um you know uh treated poorly um and that makes it extremely difficult for them to uh play against the best you know in order to be the best you have to play against the best um, so with women's carball, really what we're trying to do is not replace what, um, you know, Rocket League Championship Series is doing. We, we, we love RLCS. In fact, I think success would be if RLCS and teams that compete under RLCS would, would um, recognize some of the top talent in my league and recruit them in and sign them to one of their teams, right? Or sign an entire team in RLCS. We, we definitely, with some of our top teams, um, especially Williams Resolve um, in, in, uh, in Europe, you know, probably could compete in RLCS level. They're, they're very elite. Um, there's also the question about um, when girls drop off playing video games when they're younger. And based on the age group of when girls kind of take a break from playing games, you know, right around eight years old, and then they don't really pick it up again until maybe 13 and 14, that gap is actually when most competitive professional gamers are honing in their skills and becoming the best. And I, and I would suspect, and I don't have any actual research and data other than talking to girls myself, is um, there's not a lot of games for them. When they hit the 8, 10, 12 age range, the games that are marketed to them are very highly around dress up your pony, put your makeup on, dress up your avatar in a pretty dress. Um, they're, you know, it's more than likely a bunch of men trying to decipher what they think little girls want to play. But what we do know from taking learnings on education where there is research about what young girls are interested in, not not an interested from a from video game perspective, but interested in as a whole through STEM based um, research that's been done is um, problem solving puzzles. Um, those types of things um, really check high on girls. Um, analytics is very high. Um, girls and women do better actually at sports betting because they can remove emotion from it, and they're really looking at the data and the analytics, wow. and they're making decisions. Um, at a higher success rate than men and boys. So I think, you know, I think game developers can do a little bit better job of creating games that really are going to resonate with young girls. 
aren't pinkified. Um, and then culturally, I think there's a lot of shifts. So I don't know how long it will take to move the needle forward on that or to really make change. I would say probably 20 to 30 years before we're going to have some real cultural shift and change. But there's no reason, you know, physically and, and, and reaction time and mentally that women and girls should not be competing at the highest level right alongside boys. I think, um, I think we have some changes to do throughout the entire ecosystem from game design and development and, and even writing all the way through the way that um, girls are being raised, um, the way that they are being protected and the way that male allies can come alongside them and really encourage them and welcome them in. Um, I think that will help. Um, but creating safe places in the meantime for women to compete together um, at a very high level is, you know, some would say it's a bandaid approach, but we got to stop the bleeding somewhere. And I think that um, being able to create those safe places is instrumental in in having some first steps. No, we were talking to, um, it was interesting because we were having a conversation with Chantel Denise Ortega, who grew up in the Philippines. And she was talking about women in, in esports and gaming in the Philippines and how how women could do anything there. And Eniola Idan in Nigeria, she was like, that, that sounds like heaven. She was like, no, she says, you know, she, we wish that that was something that we could be doing here. So you're involved with, you mentioned Game Hers. Could you yep. describe a little bit more about what Game Hers does and what your role is there? Yeah, so the Game Hers is a, it's a community. It's, it lives um, um, through different social media um, platforms, through Discord. Um, it's a safe community for women and those who identify as women that love to game, to just connect and grow and learn from each other. Um, the Game Hers do um, education series through their educational boot camp. Um, they feature top women streamers through their dream stream, which is coming up. Um, and they do the Game Hers Awards, um, which is an awards show that um, really highlights the best in the business, um, not only um, in the front office of esports and gaming, but also creators, cosplay, talent um, throughout, throughout the entire in ecosystem um, in the U.S. and, and abroad. So um, I work with the gamers on um, helping them build out strategy. So I work with their founder um, and their staff on partnership strategy, growth strategy, connecting to other properties within um, within the ecosystem, um, building out um, ways that we can connect um, at the collegiate level as well, getting more girls to understand and um, where they can be in the space. And where the gamers, I think, you know, really have a, a great um, platform is connecting women to jobs and um, really connecting them to storytelling of women who are already working in this space so that they have somebody that looks like them that's doing something that they maybe didn't even know was a job. Um, and now, now they're exposed to maybe a career path they didn't even know existed, but now they see a woman, they're all seeing a woman in that space, um, which you know, as we know, gives people permission um, to go after it. Um, I, I always, it's, it's it's huge, and it's yeah. it's a it's a part of it that is under talked about. Yeah, it, yeah. But it's just 
just having role models out there, you would you would never think that that's, that role model would have an impact. We were talking to uh, Queen Arrow, who's a game, uh, fighter, fighting game uh, professional champion out of Kenya. And it's just like the, the kinds of the, the role model that she sets for African female um, gamers at a, at a professional level. She understands and she recognizes that uh, that that importance there. Could you do you know how because I always like talking about how things started here. Do you know how gamers started? Yeah, Game Hers started Rebecca Dixon, who is one of the co-founders. Um, she has a, a, her dad and brother are uh, were one of the first investors in Envy Gaming. Um, her family also owned a pro sports team um, in the past. And she would sit around the Thanksgiving dinner table and Christmas dinner. And her dad and brother kept talking about, you know, gaming and talking about esports. And, and, you know, they're, her, her dad and brother are serial entrepreneurs. They're involved in a lot of things. Um, and she was like, this is really, this is really interesting. And then another one of the co-founders, um, Heather, Heather worked on Pokemon in uh, her previous job. Um, so Rebecca Dixon at the time had just sold a company that really brought moms together um, uh, online. And she and Heather were talking about, um, you know, what if we could do this for these women that game? Because knowing that half of all gamers are women, you don't hear about them in esports very much. You don't hear about these women gamers. Um, and why is that? And maybe we could take the model of bringing all these moms together and having community and having conversations about what it is to be a new mom and, you know, finding nannies and finding community. What if we took that model and we brought it into the gaming ecosystem and we created a place for women gamers to connect and we had a private discord for women to talk about what they're experiencing um, and, and finding each other to game together and build community um, on their own as well. So it's, it was really created as a safe space. Um, and, and the communities almost kind of, you know, the way that they engage is really self-driven. You know, the community is the community. They're building their own little offshoots and growing together um, based on games they play or where they live and doing different meetups and, um, and, and connecting. Is, is and Gamers International? It, right now it is kind of like the, you know, U.S. There are some people in, in Europe that are engaged with the brand. It's not like an official international entity, however. Got it. Got it. No, it, it's it, it, just just a fascinating part of the, of the like you say, the ecosystem that, yeah. uh, that, that, need, that needs more attention than it gets. I, I could just keep talking and talking here. Um, don't want to take all of your all of your time, but I did want to talk just just really briefly about what you're doing at Stadia Ventures. Yeah, because Stadia Ventures looks to me like a really interesting program. And, I, and, and again, I'm not trying to drag things out here, but anything you want to say about them? Because the other thing that I heard you say that I didn't realize before is that they mirror your experience in being coming from traditional sports and moving into esports. And yes. that's kind of what I see them doing as well. Could you talk a little bit about what they're doing? Yeah, so Stadia, you know, is an accelerator program that is really created to bring subject matter experts. When it was created, it was subject matter experts in sports and entertainment. 
to really vet out and identify um, the, the, the next generation of technical um, evolution applied to sports and entertainment, whether that's the music industry, traditional entertainment events industry, um, or sports industry. And esports kind of found Stadia. And then um, some due diligence was done and it was decided we should expand into, into this esports space. This is somewhere that is, you know, really, really going to grow here in the United States. Um, so they layered that in very intentionally and even started doing their, um, their cohort, um, their, their pitch days. Every other one was in St. Louis and the other in the Dallas market, which Dallas is very prevalent in, in esports. Um, so the way that it works is every six months, there's an open call for startups to apply. Um, there's obviously some um, guardrails around where you need to be in your journey and information you need to be willing to supply. Um, that um, application process is you know, usually open for about 30 days or so. Um, all of those applicants are reviewed in groups um, by um, advisors um, like myself, and um, we kind of we kind of rank those through uh, a system to find the ones that kind of you know you kind of keep letting the fat rise to the top, so to speak. I guess if you're turning butter, um, and um, <laughs> that's a, that's a Minnesota reference if yeah. I've ever heard one. Yeah, welcome to my Midwest references, um, and then uh, in the top know, the top 10. And then that takes a while, you know, to vet through and to do the research and to ask for more information. But the top around top 10 are invited to pitch live in person during COVID. We did it digital, but live to our advisory group. And then um, we usually we all rank and pick through, uh, you know, a, a very secure private ranking system to, um, to find the ones that we all agree have the highest likelihood of success. And it's not necessarily who do we think is going to get somewhere faster or who has it all figured out. Like this has, we love the founders. We've got something really tangible here. Um, we recognize there's these five gaps, but we know how to fill those gaps. And we're going to re- really be able to like a true accelerator, accelerate them forward. So then what we do is we take those, um, the, the ones we've we've invited to be a part of the cohort, if they agree, then they get involved in a pretty immersive uh, mentorship program. And we handpick through our mentors and advisors, people who have a deep, a deeper understanding of where that company either is or is trying to go. Like for me, if it's an esports one, a lot of times they throw it my way. If it's hunting and fishing type of tech, they hunt, they throw that my way at my lifelong hunter and fisherman. So I've, I've worked on some pretty cool, um, pretty cool uh, apps and product um, innovation in that space as well. Um, and then we mentor them and we meet with them weekly. Uh, and then they go in front of our, our group of investors and they kind of repitch. They, we help them, we help them with their, with their pitch materials, with their presentation skills. Um, we really help them um, with identifying um, their growth strategy, their value proposition, their services and products, really get that all dialed in for them. 
Um, and then we, cr- we have another live event where all of our investors come in, the community comes together. And then those, you know, four or five, three to five winners of, of the pitch competition come and they represent themselves um, for additional investment to our investment um, ecosystem. Our, 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 our uh, investment um, group is it has a lot of tentacles to it. So we've got investors that might not even be investors in Stadia, but they're part of our investment community. And we want to give them eyeballs on on things that we believe in. So um, so we, we house that. We do that every six months, um, which is pretty, it's pretty fun. The, the mentors, the advisors are some of the, the leading um, voices and minds throughout all of sports and entertainment and, um, and now esports. So it's a, uh, it, there's a lot of value to being selected and invited in as an advisor because your ability to to network um, amongst peers is invaluable. Yes, we we actually first came across Stadia Ventures to one of our earlier guests, uh, Trev Keen from oh, Ireland. Yeah, was uh, w- uh, was also a- an advisor there. So as part of the process at Stadia Ventures, does does the applicant receive an investment or is that at the end that they would they be get, received an investment? They get up to a hundred thousand dollars plus the mentorship program as, as part of, um, you know, winning and that goes back and forth. I mean, they, they're given an offer. Those are closed door conversations. Um, we've had people that we really were excited about coming in and, and it just, didn't work out like you know they've chosen not to not to um go through the mentorship process either they weren't couldn't come to terms on the investment and um you know the investment aspect of it or the time commitment to them at that time just really didn't feel like it was um going to be you know achievable for them um it is a lot it, it is a lot of uh, commitment. We don't want the, the 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 thing is you don't want a startup to come in just for the Rolodex. You really want them to have ears for listening and really want to take the advice because it is very valuable advice. So you know it it has to be it, ha- it has to have founders that really want to invest the time to put in that hard work and. Sometimes what they think it would mean is not necessarily what they're up to go for when they're finally selected. What what I hear in your voice when you're talking about this, you really like doing this. Oh yeah. It's like you're, 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 you're you're excited because I can just see the value and you get to look at so many different things and interact with so many different people that it's like, that's one of the things that I like. One of the reasons, great. and And you know, this, uh, if you have a podcast, if you have a podcast, you can talk to people that you would never pick up the, you, you would never be able to organize a conversation right. Right. the same way. I mean, we would never have the same kind of conversation, but because I have a podcast, it's like, then I'm able to, to do that. And I'm just like, I actually was interviewed today for somebody for their book about networking and like, you know, ask me all these things about networking. And I'm like, you know, I've just always been a, someone who loves people. I'm like, you know, I'm not a traditional salesperson. I'm a marketer and I'm a marketer because I like solving problems. And I really loved advertising because 
you know, and, and working on creative teams and, and building brands because it's a lot of problem solving, right? Um, I kind of, my, 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 a lot of my girlfriends say I'm like a professional fairy godmother where it's like, I'm really able to help people um, identify their gaps and create solutions for those gaps in multiple areas of my life. And I've kind of always been that way. I think, you know, when you think about going all the way back to maybe fourth and fifth grade in primary school, you have to do these group projects. And I was always like the project manager. I was always the one who was in charge, making sure everything was done. Everything was on time. Everybody knew their role was leading. I was always the presenter, the person on the stage. Um, I love connecting with people. Um, I've always been one to um, jot down some notes when I've met somebody about um, things that I wanted to follow up on or you know, my podcast even was derived from having a lot of first conversations when right before COVID was happening and esports was kind of the buzzword of the year, even before COVID. Um, people were, you know, can we talk to you about esports? We pick your brain. Well, I was having these conversations with people and I was like, oh, they should meet. I'm writing down notes the whole time. They need to meet this person and that person and they have to look at this tool. And I would follow up and it got to the point where like, I should be recording these conversations. Like we're just uncovering so many cool things on this call where I'm like getting a fire in my belly when I hang up the phone and I'm like energized to like help a stranger. I don't even know who they are. But like, all right, some LinkedIn connection, just going to open up my Rolodex and point them in a d- bunch of different ways. I've helped a lot of people find jobs um, throughout my entire career, you know, going back 20 years, helping people find a job and um, just from hearing about what they're doing and knowing somebody who's already reached out saying that they're looking for somebody who has that skill set. Right. So I mean, my brain just retains information about people and what they're good at and what they love. And I just connect them. So that's how my podcast came to life. I was like, I just want to like tell these stories. I just want to like bring people along my journey of getting to know people and what they're doing. Um, it, it all, com- it all comes back to storytelling. doesn't Yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, everything that we're doing. Hey, I, I really appreciate your time here. I appreciate learning more about what you're doing there, you know, in uh, monetizing, in e- uh, investing, in working in women in esports and so on. Where can people find you online? Um, yeah, I mean, on um, it's my last name. Is, my first name is Rebecca with two C's. Uh, my last name is L-O-N-G-A-W-A. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram, Rebecca underscore Longoa. I've got a podcast, The Future of Marketing in Esports. I talked to some really cool people. I mean, that's where you can hear um, a lot of other people in the industry talk about what they're working on, what they're doing, how they're marketing, how they're reaching people. Um, That is on iTunes, Spotify, all the major podcast networks. You can find that podcast. Um, uh, And it's R. Longawa on Twitter. Great. No, we'll put it all in the the show notes there for, for people to to be able to reach out because no, because there's just so much great information here. I mean, th- th- I learned and I'm really glad that um, other people, e- even people, you know, people from all over the world, a lot of times it's like, well, is this going to, how's this going to work in uh, India? It's right. like, no, it works really well in India because we've already had conversations with people there. So we know that. So yeah. thanks again for listening. This is the Gamers Change Life podcast, season two, follow the money, play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Tom. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date 
with episodes as soon as they're uploaded and so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening. Thank you.